The Malaysian federal and state governments declare the exclusive right to interpret what's proper Islam uh, at the state and federal level. Hello and welcome to the USURF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, we're going to briefly discuss the history and ongoing situation of Malaysia's dual legal system and the gray areas that arise related to protecting freedom of religion or belief of Malaysians in the court system. Malaysia is a leading economy and one of a few functioning democracies in Southeast Asia. However, it's been impacted in recent years by political instability and enabling certain political groups to exacerbate ethnic and religious tensions in pursuit of votes. USERF has actively reported on religious freedom conditions in Malaysia, including in our most recent 2022 annual report, where USERF recommended that the State Department again place Malaysia on its special watch list for engaging in or tolerating severe violations of religious freedom. Now, USERF last visited Malaysia in 2020, just before the uh, pandemic, and Malaysia's dual legal system and the implications this has on religious freedom has been a core component of USERF's reporting since we first started reporting on the country in 2014. And unfortunately, conditions have only worsened uh, since that time. We have with us today USERF policy analyst Patrick Greenwald to dig deeper into these issues. He was part of that USERF delegation uh, that visited Malaysia in 2020. He focuses on Malaysia and the Southeast Asia region. Welcome back to USERF Spotlight, Patrick. Thanks so much, Dwight. It's great to be back. Now, to start off with, it would be great if you could share with our audience a brief background on Malaysia's legal system and explain why it's unique. Yeah, so Malaysia maintains a dual legal system that's divided, uh, divided between civil and religious courts. Uh, the religious is based on the Shafi school of Sunni Islamic jurisprudence, and it's applicable to all resident Muslims within Malaysia. So the government has based this need for Sharia law on Article 1 of the Constitution, which states that Islam is the religion of the Federation. This article was initially intended as a ceremonious nod to the unique history and culture of Malaysia's Muslim-majority Malay population, but it has since been used in recent decades as the motivation to establish what is an extensive bureaucratic apparatus at both federal and state levels. At first, Sharia was applied only to family law issues like inheritance and divorce, but its jurisdiction has grown, and it is delegated to the states to implement and develop. So there are different sets of Sharia for each of the 13 and three federal, or 13 states and three federal territories. Wow, that uh, definitely is unique. Can you explain then why uh, the jurisdiction of Islamic law or Sharia has grown uh, in this way? Yeah, so first, it's important to remember the historical context. The Federation of Malaysia gained full independence from England in 1957. The demographic composition then is quite different than what it is now. For example, the three main ethnic groups 
Um, ethnic Malays in 1957 were 49% of the population. Chinese, uh, Chinese Malays were 34%, and Indian Malays were uh, Malaysians were 11%. Today, ethnic Malays make up 54%, Chinese Malaysians 23%, and Indian Malaysians 7%. Uh, fears of being outnumbered and feelings of inferiority have long been prevalent among many ethnic Malays. So these percentage changes are actually quite significant in a country whose politics are decided electorally. For the greater part of Malaysia's history, uh, they've been led by the same political parties with the United Malays National Organization or UMNO at its head. UMNO has dominated the ethnic Malay vote, but often competes with the Malaysian Islamic Party or PAS for this demographic. And ethnic Malays being Muslim and a majority of the country mean that Malaysia has been affected by the global Islamic revival movement that started in the end of the 70s and really picked up in the 80s. The judicial system at the early part of Malaysia's independence really sought to continue this Western tradition of judicial independence, but this came into conflict with the ruling coalition. And I should note that it wasn't just on religious issues that the judicial system came into conflict with Malaysia's political factions, but the growing assertiveness of Malay Muslim interests did feature in these tensions, which reached a peak in 1988. In a response to a number of unfavorable cases to the parliament and especially the prime minister, then Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed was able to have the high court judges removed by the Supreme Head of the Federation. And this opened the way for many constitutional changes to be solidified, such as the provision inserted uh, into Article 121, Section 1A, which states that the civil courts shall have no jurisdiction in respect of any matter within the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts. So the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts, the role in everyday life of Muslims, as well as the bureaucratic apparatus of federal and state governments in regulating Islam grew enormously from this moment. And the civil courts, including Malaysia's highest court, the federal court, have been hesitant to rule on cases involving Islam. However, developments in recent years have in only a limited manner begun to reassert some jurisdiction from the Sharia courts. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, it'd be great if you could expand a little bit on that last point in terms of what are some of the developments that you, you're referring to that have allowed for the reassertion of civil court jurisdiction as opposed to Sharia courts? Yeah, for sure. So in February this year, the federal court declared unconstitutional an attempt by the Salangor State Legislative Assembly to empower Sharia courts with the ability to conduct ju judicial reviews of Islamic authorities' decisions. The federal court asserted that judicial review is exclusively a civil court right. So this was a pretty assertive stance. Another area is the issue of unilateral conversions. Sharia courts have been known to trap non-Muslims when it comes to the custody of their children. There are instances where a divorced parent will convert to Islam and then apply to the Sharia courts to unilaterally convert their children to obtain custody. In 2009, Muhammad Ridwin Abdullah did just this. He converted to Islam, took custody of the children and unilaterally converted his children from Hinduism without their mother's consent. The mother, Indira Gandhi, launched a court case that spanned uh, over a decade to retrieve her, or about a decade, to retrieve her children reverse their decision, uh, this conversion. 
the legal battle was lengthy and in, it went back and forth. In 2013, the Ipoh High Court sided with Indira Gandhi, declaring the conversions null and void. However, in 2015, the Court of Appeal quashed the High Court, deferring jurisdiction over conversions to Islam to Sharia courts. But Indira Gandhi didn't settle there. She continued and took her case to the federal court, which in 2018, a full nine years after she initiated this court case, the federal court sided with her and set a precedent for conversions of minors re requiring the consent of both parents. Um, and another court case that was resolved recently in, on April 12, 2022 involved uh, a mother who tried to unilater unilaterally convert her children from uh, Buddhism to Islam. The federal court sided with the father and nullified the children's unilateral conversion. Yeah, so that that trend does sound promising, but has there have there been any uh, movement? Has there been any movement on uh, religious freedom related cases like this one that you you just explained? Unfortunately, no. It it hasn't been across the board that uh, in all cases um, that the federal court has gone in this direction. For example. Uh, the Malaysian federal and state governments declare the exclusive right to interpret what's proper Islam uh, at the state and federal level or state governments. Um, and they made this clear in its 2019 ruling against the Islamic NGO Sisters in Islam. The Salangor Fatwa Council had declared Sisters in Islam deviant, and the group had challenged this in the civil court system, but the high courts uh, sided with the Sharia courts leaving the restrictions of the fatwa in place uh, and uh, uh, officially uh, leaving the fatwa against sisters in Islam. Um, they're still working to appeal this decision. We'll see where that goes. But another example is the ability to determine one's own faith identity, which is still prohibited for all those whose ID or identification cards label them as Muslim, uh, particularly if they are ethnically Malay. Conversion away from Islam is an extremely sensitive issue for the Malaysian government and Malaysian society at large. The government maintains, as we mentioned, the Shafi'i school of jurisprudence of Sunni Islam as the only true form of the religion. Therefore, ethnic Malays who are constitutionally mandated to uh, adhere to Islam uh, and be Muslim have no religious freedom to determine their faith identity or their practices. And this was confirmed in the case of Lena Joy, who in 1998 tried to convert from Islam and register her faith uh, as not Islamic or as Catholicism. So Lena Joy, who had been a practicing Catholic, uh, went to the National Registration Department to change her name and religious identification. When she received her card back, it still listed Islam, and she was told she would need a certificate from her local Sharia court, which ultimately proved impossible. So Lena Joy began a decade long legal struggle in which the federal court ultimately ruled against her in 2007. The federal court confirmed that a certificate of apostasy was necessary for her change of religion because all matters relating to apostasy for Muslims is the exclusive domain of religious courts. But since apostasy is illegal, she was unable to get that certificate and she was unable to change her registered faith. And in 2015, four individuals from Sarawak also wished to leave Islam, uh, and they appealed their case all the way to the federal court, which in 2017 confirmed 
the president said in Alina Joy and deferred to the Sharia courts. And on June 15th this year in 2022, the High Court reaffirmed that civil courts have no jurisdiction over matters involving those who seek to renounce Islam and that this issue falls under Sharia courts, dismissing a woman's bid to start a legal challenge to renounce her faith and convert outside it. Uh, Malaysia is a country where the official religion is Islam, and unfortunately, Malaysia has determined again and again that this entails no freedom of religion or belief for those born or converted to Islam. Yeah, very interesting, but also complicated uh, and uh, difficult as far as the, the jurisdiction, it sounds like uh, to me. Um, are, are there some other areas uh, that uh, uh, negatively impact religious freedom within Malaysia's legal system that you could touch on outside, uh, outside of what you've already uh, talked about? Yeah, so the status of Ahmadiyya Muslims is still in limbo. As I mentioned before, the federal and state governments only recognize one school of Islam. And for the past couple of years, we at USERF have been reporting on the limited progress of an ongoing court case to determine the religious identity for the tiny Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Malaysia. This community considers themselves Muslim. They call their holy book the Quran and their houses of worship mosques. However, the government of Malaysia views them as well as all other sects of Islam besides Sunni as heretics. And the ire of the Malaysian government for non-Sunni Muslims is particularly noteworthy. In officially provided sermons, uh, Followers are warned about the supposed dangers of these sects. Uh, school children in mandatory religious classes are taught the same. And outside of Ahmadiyya mosques, the government puts up huge signs referring to them with a derogatory name and calling them not Muslims. This ongoing court case will determine the religious identity uh, and decide the question, are Ahmadiyya Muslims Muslim in Malaysia? This would have implications whether they're allowed to use Islamic terms, in their faith practices and for ethnic Malay Ahmadiyya Muslims, uh, the ruling uh, could have significant effects on their ability to practice their faith. There are other problem problematic areas of Malaysia's legal system, such as the use of Arabic words. This has been something of a flashpoint. In March 2021, the Kuala Lumpur High Court ruled that Christian communities could use Arabic religious words. And uh, before this, all non-Muslims have been banned out of a concern that using Arabic words might confuse otherwise pious Muslims and lead them astray. In another case in February 2021, Malaysia's federal court declared a Sharia law in Selangor state criminalizing gay sex as unconstitutional. And this sent shockwaves around the country that are still being felt uh, and will likely lead to other court cases. Uh, for the Malaysian federal and state governments um, that they maintain many religious laws against sexual and gender minorities and, and some even run conversion therapy camps. As a result, uh, ruling parties have promised to strengthen regulation against this community, the Muslim LGBT community, and as recently as March 2022, the federal Islamic agency known as JAKIM uh, announced in parliament steps they were taking to tackle this issue. Uh, while these rulings from courts are in some ways promising, uh, some of these court cases, it's still the case that the current position of the secular courts in Malaysia, and particularly when we look at the precedents they have set in their rulings, indicate a prioritization of Islam over many constitutional norms and basic guarantees of human rights on religious freedom. This is definitely something you, Surf, as well as the human rights community in general, 
will have to keep watch over, particularly as political parties such as PAS make calls for rewriting the legal system to replace common law entirely with Sharia. Yeah, very complicated indeed. And, and uh, while we might see, as you're saying, some promising developments uh, through the court system, there's certainly some challenges. And, and in any case, we know full well that is, uh, according to international um, legal standards, the right to freedom of religion and belief, prioritization or favoritism of one religion or another is contrary to the international standards. So this is definitely a challenge, as you said, we have to look at closely. And, and speaking of uh, looking at things uh, and keeping monitor on, on developments, um, is there anything that USURF has recommended as far as US policy vis-a-vis -vis the legal system in Malaysia? Um, and do you have any thoughts on uh, anything that the US government or international committee for that matter can do to help move things uh, in the right direction? Definitely. So as we've mentioned in our reporting consistently, uh, the US should continue to raise these issues of human rights in its dialogues with uh, Malaysia, um, as well as through multilateral forests such as ASEAN, the US should focus on the need to promote harmony and stability by providing for the freedom of religion and belief for all people, not just members of the majority. And we should make sure to submit these concerns to the Universal Periodic Review. As you mentioned in the introduction, Malaysia is one of the few functioning democracies in Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of room to work with uh, as partners to advance freedom of religion and belief. Uh, the US could also send diplomats whenever court cases are held with public attendance. This would send a message that this is an important issue that we're following, but the US, we, we must be careful because issues concerning the supremacy of Sunni Islam can be very sensitive. A final way we could begin to build bridges and expand for our freedom of religion and belief is by strengthening our exchange programs, such as the International Visitor Leadership Program uh, IVLP to include lawyers and judges from both secular and religious courts, as well as human rights activists. Well, we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank USURF policy analyst Patrick Greenwald for sharing his insights and expertise today on the dual uh, court system in Malaysia. This is definitely an issue USURF will continue to monitor and track, and you can find USURF's latest reporting and findings on Malaysia and our recommendations for US policy on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight. To learn more about USURF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.